0: Welcome to the podcast that shares the views of high-level leaders in the European and global financial services industry. Welcome to Shaping Finance, a podcast which offers a platform to high-level decision-makers and shapers in international finance. My name is Nicolas Mackel. I'm the CEO of Luxembourg for Finance and the host of this podcast. Today, I am very pleased and honored to be joined by Pierre Gramegna, Luxembourg's Minister of Finance, who has already been a guest with us a year ago about. Minister Gramegna, welcome to Shaping Finance.
1: It's a pleasure to be here again.
0: Well, a year ago, you were my very first guest on this podcast. And at that time, we were in the first phase of the COVID pandemic. Now, looking back, what has been the impact on our, that is Luxembourg, and the EU's economies so far? And how do you see this crisis playing out in the coming years?
1: Well, the first thing we can say about the pandemic uh, probably is that we should all be humble in front of such a situation, because there was no blueprint ready to face such a situation, and there still is no blueprint. We can certainly learn a lot from this pandemic and the economic crisis that has come after. But uh, really, let's be humble because uh, it, it was a difficult situation. Looking back, uh, many have said that uh, it was the worst economic crisis since 100 years. I've never used that vocabulary because not that I thought it was wrong, but I just thought it's too early to judge. Uh, And uh, with hindsight, it's obviously easier. What I'm saying today is it was the fastest and deepest crisis to hit uh, the world economy ever, because it happened in a matter of uh, weeks and months. But it's also probably going to enter history as one uh, of the crises where the way out is fastest. So a kind of V-shaped crisis. And many said that in the beginning it could be a V-shaped and then others said it could be a U-shaped one. Well, that sounds a little bit abstract, but what it really means is it was deep, fast, and we're coming out faster than expected. That's good news. Europe had a decline of GDP of around 6-7% last year. Is recovering with three four percent this year, so more or less compensating for the loss of last year. In terms of Luxembourg, we had only minus one point three, and uh, a forecast of four to five this year. That's good news. So Luxembourg, as we speak here in June, uh, will uh, be at a level of uh, GDP that is higher, slightly higher, or at least the same as the pre-crisis level. This being said, um, uh, this is a kind of general statement. We've uh, seen through the crisis that um, uh, the crisis highlighted the weaknesses of our systems, highlighted them and accelerated them. Our health systems in many countries were not resilient enough, not strong enough. We have to learn from that. The other thing is that climate change, we had a life-size test of it Uh, showing that human activity is one of the main factors on the heating uh, of the planet, on the CO2 emissions. So it's difficult to be a climate skeptic today. So so there's things to learn from the crisis and that's what the European uh, Union has done.
0: Talking about the European Union, the EU Recovery Fund was agreed more or less a year ago. How do you assess the EU's response with this hindsight?
1: Yeah, if you would have told me before the crisis that we would agree on all the things we have agreed, I would have said you're a dreamer. Reminds me the song of John Lennon, Imagine, imagine. (laughs) And we have imagined the future with more solidarity. That was maybe not unexpected, but certainly not certain. On April 9th last year, that is now more than a year ago, we agreed a package of 514 billion emergency measures, safety nets, uh, that are uh, guaranteed by the European Investment Bank, by the European Stability Mechanism, by the SURE program of the Commission, which uh, helps countries finance short labor systems. All this was agreed uh, quite quickly. April was at the beginning of the lockdown. And then uh, even more so in July, and the months after the Prime ministers agreed at EU level to have the Resilience and Recovery Fund uh, worth 750 billion euro, which is being implemented as we speak uh, with also something that I find key in the whole thing is a kind of quality message. It's not only about money and spending money. It's about two things. It's about qualitative investment and the dual transition. The dual transition meaning climate change and green Investments on the one hand and uh, digitalization investments on on the other hand. So the recovery that we are wishing for ourselves in Europe is the one that doesn't only build back better, which is a very well-known formula today. I would say build forward better.
0: There is a narrative um, that the United States, just like with the previous crisis, are emerging faster and stronger out of this crisis than Europe is in large part also thanks to a much heftier stimulus but also um, a better management of the vaccination process. What is your view on this and where does Europe stand when compared to the US and Asia?
1: Well there's uh, two questions in your question. One is that uh, they've been better with vaccines. Uh, the answer is yes. Yes. They have been better in vaccines because they were available to them and they were not available to the same extent and the same amount to the European Union. But we're catching up. The more we get uh, vaccines, the more we are vaccinating. And if I look at the numbers now, we're really catching up. In my country, in many European countries, we have vaccinated with at least one shot, more than half population. Benelux countries, including Luxembourg, is among the best performers here, but we cannot uh, uh, deny that. Uh, Obviously, we could not uh, do better than we did if uh, we didn't have the vaccines, but let's recognize that. On the second point, uh, let's also here make a comparison that is really, truly honest let's compare apples with apples and pears with pears. The United States has announced over the last months subsidies worth 3000 billion 3 trillion dollars. And uh, as I mentioned before, uh, the recovery and resilience fund of the European Union is 750 billion add the 540 billion emergency measures you would say well that's a third. There's two things that we need to add here. One is we have what uh, economists call Automatic stabilizers. Now, what does that mean? We have safety nets. We have social safety nets that do not exist in the United States that are not counted separately. Short labor schemes, support mechanisms to companies, and so on, and so on. And also a kind of uh, social attitude which is different from the higher-end fire. So what happened in Europe is that the unemployment rate stayed more or less where it was prior to the pandemic, which was completely different in the United States. So we have different systems. One might prefer one or the other. Uh, We stand by the one that we have in Europe, which gives you... More, more quietness, more stability, also a higher cost to a certain extent. And these national measures and these automatic stabilizers are not counted in the numbers that I mentioned before. So basically, the commission has calculated, you commission, that uh, the automatic stabilizers, all these subsidies that are embedded in our systems, account for around 800 billion uh, in 2020 and something similar this year. Now, if you add 800, 800 plus the 750, the numbers... Very close, but definitely our system is a little bit different. And then, last but not least, what I really like about the European response to the crisis is the accent on qualitative investment. Now, you could have decided, and we could have done that in Europe at national level or international level, to just give purchasing power to people so that they consume. But I think that's a little bit uh, kind of quick fire that you start, but that doesn't really reform the country and make your country stronger. I'm glad that we decided to uh, focus on qualitative investment.
0: In June, the group of seven largest economies reached an agreement for a global minimum tax. The deal is obviously still a draft version with changes expected to come. Nevertheless, what impact do you foresee this agreement may have on Luxembourg's economy once it is finalized?
1: I'm quite confident that the breakthrough that was registered in London beginning of June in terms of international taxation is a real breakthrough. It was announced that way. Some people use the word historic. I hesitate to use that because with hindsight, sometimes one realizes that one should be very prudent to use that word. But it's definitely a breakthrough. There's, there's two major decisions in this. Let me describe them first and then say how Luxembourg stands in this respect. Pillar two, as is technically called, is the introduction of a minimum effective tax rate in all the countries of 15% Minimum 50% will eventually be the compromise. Let's talk about that number, 15%. In the past, the discussions were to have that 15% as an average for every multinational, every company worldwide, which would have allowed for discrepancies between one jurisdiction and another. Now, the new compromise is 15% in every country, on a country-by-country basis. So that means this 15% rate is a must to look at for all countries. Now, Luxembourg fully subscribes to this because it will bring a kind of certainty in the system and a level playing field. Because if it is 15% country by country, it is level playing field. And we've been advocating that since a long time, that we need a solution not only at G7, G20 level or EU level, we need it at the level OECD in the inclusive format which encompasses 140 countries. So that's what we're working on. Uh, The pillar two was minimum taxation. Now, pillar one is used to be referred to as digital taxation issue, the only one that the OECD had not solved in the past. Uh, And uh, there the solution is different from what was on the table. It was an American proposal to say that the most profitable multinationals, so those that have a profitability above 10% uh, in their business, that they should pay part of their taxes in the country of consumption, in the country where they sell their goods and services. Well, that's a, that's a real revolution because that has never happened. So it relativizes the importance of uh, a headquarter to a certain extent, but 20% will depend on the country of consumption. So we can also obviously live with that. as Luxembourg. So we support what's on the table, we think it will draw a a new international landscape for taxation, which will make taxation less important in the international context. Because what countries will have to build on is not their tax system, it's their attractiveness in general. For my country, Luxembourg, the AAA, uh, the social and political stability, the productivity of people who work here are going to be even more important than they were in the past. So I'm also confident for my country. and uh, But the last sentence I would like to say here is what we really need is a level playing field. Once we have that, international globalization will be also much more accepted internationally.
0: Let us maybe switch the topic a little bit and go to another one that is very high on everybody's agenda, which is obviously sustainable finance and, as we all know, is also one of your priorities. What has Luxembourg done in this area since last summer when you first spoke on shaping finance?
1: I think that uh, over the next weeks and months, everybody will realize that sustainable finance is not uh, nice to have, but a must. I push the idea to such an extent that I would say that when we're talking about the dual transition, the transition towards digital, the transition towards a CO2-friendly growth, we're missing out on something very important, which is how can finance make sure we can do those two transitions step by step? We cannot, to illustrate that, think that we can transform our economies, especially with the climate goals in mind, in a minute. So it means that on a step-by-step basis, we must finance projects that are maybe not 100% ideal for climate change, but better than the ones we had before. So that's what it means to green the investment projects, step-by-step. On the other hand, make it interesting for the finance industry To green the portfolios, their own portfolio, the portfolios of the investment funds. So uh, it's a double track here that we need to ensure because we must avoid the issue of stranded assets, that the portfolios of the customers of the banks and others are very bad for climate on the one hand. And if we want to change that, we need time. And the other thing we must avoid is obviously greenwashing. Calling something a green project with or green investment which does not deserve it, and there the European Union with the rules on taxonomy, has really made an epochal change. Now, the rules of the EU called taxonomy are still in the making. I mean, derivative legislation is happening in front of our eyes. There's also some uh, tension here because you have the purists who would like to have the highest standard possible already now and calling uh, what is green only the perfect project. And those who say we need to do it step by step, Uh, And then we have, therefore, in Europe, an advantage compared to others. Uh, If you look at uh, the green assets in the investment world, they are mostly in Europe. If you look at the currency that's key for sustainable finance, it's the euro to 80%. If you look at the green bonds, for example, and so on. So there's an area where Europe is ahead of the others. We need to build on that. And not to forget that there's still a lot of potential. that, in fact, we're just in the beginning phase. Green bonds or sustainable bonds represent less than 5% of all bonds issued. And uh, Luxembourg is a key driver in this. We did a sustainability bond back last year in September, which was both social and environmental. That was very successful, first AAA country in Europe to do that. But that's not enough. We need to get much more. And uh, the Luxembourg Green Exchange, which uh, lists... uh, Uh, sustainable bonds exclusively, is really a success story because they list more than half of the world's sustainable obligations and bonds. But it just tells us we're just in the beginning of the process; there's a lot of work ahead.
0: One of the aspects that you put in place in order to encourage this was a reduction of the subscription tax that investment funds pay in Luxembourg, from five basis points basically to one basis point. What has this already shown, if anything at all, maybe it is too early, and what do you expect from it, what do you expect to see?
1: Well, uh, I, I think you already heard that part of the answer, that it is too early to, to have a definite view on it. But it brought about two things, uh, comments from the industry telling us that Oh, we, we have a portfolio that would comply with sustainable assets that's so low that we might not benefit from it. Well, at least I get these comments and I tell them, so you realize that you're very far away from what you were hoping or expecting. That's why also we have pushed in Luxembourg, an initiative which uh, will happen in the the weeks and and months to come to encourage all players in the investment fund world and uh, all the players in the banking sector to do an X-ray of their portfolio of loans or funds so that they at least have in front of their eyes the situation in which they're in. Obviously, it's not easy to comply with the taxonomy from day one to another but uh, let's have this honesty to look at the reality. So this fiscal tax incentive that we have created has raised the interest in the whole matter. And in fact, there's also something a little bit frightening in it that, well, this is not the only reason why this is happening. Obviously, the pandemic and climate change issues that have come to the forefront even more have played a role in this. But if we want to be successful and have this third transition, the financial one, when we need all actors to recognize what the state of play is and give themselves periods in which they want to act. And the quicker the better. And the more they do it, the more they will benefit from the subscription tax
0: reduction. Before we end, let me get to one other topic that has also been keeping you busy for the last couple of years, and that is uh, Brexit. Six months after the end of the transition period, the United Kingdom and the European Union are still bickering over the implementation of the trade agreement, while in the financial services area, the Commission has more or less created a fait accompli, obliging activities to take place in the EU except, of course, for derivatives where the EU isn't quite ready yet. Will this state of affairs continue for the foreseeable future?
1: Uh, It's difficult to answer this question uh, in a nutshell. Uh, Let me try to distinguish here. Uh, What we had uh, before the uh, exit of the United Kingdom, we had a EU single market that was encompassing the United Kingdom, so what we had was a four-way bridge across the channel, automatic general access. That has disappeared. We know that. We knew that from the start. So Luxembourg has been advocating and is still advocating that we should at least have a footbridge or or narrower bridge. Now, not everybody sees it that way. Some countries would like to punish the United Kingdom for exiting. I, I don't think this is the right approach because it's in the common interest of the United Kingdom and the European Union to close They work together in financial services, London being number one in the world, and on the European continent having half a dozen large financial centers. Now, Luxembourg, like a few other financial centers, has benefited from the Brexit in the short term because some had to relocate part of their business into the European continent, uh, opening subsidiaries uh, on the European continent. So that's a fact. But that's a short-term view. How can we develop the cooperation in the future? That's what we're working on. That's why the Commission has signed an MOU with the United Kingdom at the end of the first quarter, uh, which gives a framework, a general framework to have a constructive and permanent dialogue with the United Kingdom. That's a difference with what happens with all the other countries where there are decisions of equivalence that are taken on a case-by-case basis by the Commission. We've been advocating that and we think that's the right kind of framework. What will come out of it depends on both sides. Now, uh, if each side wants to take hostage the other side because one area, it could be Northern Ireland, it can be trade, it can be anything, is taken hostage, or it's taken us all hostage in financial services, we're not going to help each other. So what I recommend is that we look at financial services as a domain of common interest where we both take advantage of our strengths that we have and we try to ignore the paraphernalia and all the other uh, issues because it is often rather technical. What we definitely want is financial stability on both sides, uh, not to jeopardize that, to have common approaches to anti-money laundering, to regulation as such, And in the end, financial stability and uh, credible financial centers that work together to the benefit of our own economies, but also to the rest of the world. Because one other risk, and I'm going to conclude on that, is the tendency with some countries inside the European Union to use the pretext of Brexit to build hurdles, not only with the United Kingdom, but to build walls around the EU single market. It's not in the best interest of Europe to build walls. I remember the discussions uh, when we did the EU single market back in the 90s. Some countries were afraid we were building walls around the EU. We haven't done that to the best benefit of us and the rest of the world. Uh, let's uh, uh, let's do it well this time too and uh, avoid walls and build bridges.
0: Thank you. And before we conclude, let me ask the last question, which is about a book you may have read in the last couple of weeks or months that you would like to recommend to our audience?
1: Oh, uh, that comes uh, as a surprise as I was really not prepared for that, but uh, let me then mention a book that I have read last summer and which is not a new book, which I read for the second time in my life and that's a book by George Orwell, 1984. And the reason why I mentioned it is because this book was so forward looking that re-reading it, uh, I read it as a student, so 40 years ago, uh, rereading it now uh, is such an eye opener. So there's certainly many books that come out now that are worth reading, but this one is worth
0: rereading. There's certainly some classics that are definitely worth rereading. Thank you very much Minister Gramenia. It was a great pleasure talking to you as always. Thank you also to our listeners who have tuned in again to our podcast. After a short summer break, we will be back in September with a new episode of Shaping Finance where I will be interviewing Paul Donovan, the chief economist for Europe at UBS. To stay up to date with our podcast, please feel free to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or Google. You can also find more information on our website, luxembourgforfinance.com.